Let's pray together. Our Father, we have been left to reflect upon that phrase, we worship your holy name. Your goodness, your greatness, your presence, the great I am, what you have done for us in Christ Jesus, and how you have given us your word. Your word is truth. It's life. It's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. It brings to us the eternal life words of Christ. Shows us where salvation can be found. Tells us how we can please the Lord. How we can keep from sinning as we hide the word of God in our hearts. So I pray, Father, this morning that you would give us a new awareness, or maybe a refresher of awareness of the majesty of your word to us, how great it is, what a great privilege it is that we have it, and that by having it, we might recognize what a powerful tool we have in our hands for good and for God. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For the next couple of weeks, we are going to be presenting an apologetic for the word of God, really, a a description of what you have in the tool, God's written word, where it came from and that you can have confidence in it. I, I fear that some of you are going to feel this morning like you're standing in front of a fire, fire hydrant and it's just a gusher of information blasting out at you over these next couple of weeks. But hopefully uh, you will find this uh, vital uh, for um, defending the truth of God's word. Um, on the firing line is the Bible. And if, you, if we are going to be able to have confidence in what we believe and be able to defend what we believe and be able to, to share with those who have, uh, are skeptics about what we believe, we really need to understand the written record of, of what God has given us here in his word. We need to be able to answer the questions. Because quite honestly, those people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of them out there, if you have encountered the same people that I've encountered, they've said, How are you, why are you paying attention to a, a book, an old book written by a bunch of people who are dead for centuries uh, with old-fashioned standards? This book isn't relevant for today. I mean, things have changed. Why would you consider this a guidebook for your living? That question needs to be answered, Really? And so uh, this morning we'll try to do that. This next couple of weeks we'll, we'll be spending time. Today the Bible, how, how did we get it? What place should it have in our life? Because we already know that what we truly believe is how we will live, how we will act, right? We've already, over these several weeks, have settled that to be true. I want to point out to you, though, as we, as we enter into this um, discussion on the, the credibility of the Bible that there are some presuppositions or beliefs in advance that, that must be true before you can really make any progress with anybody about trusting the Bible. You know, the, the first presupposition when you encounter somebody is, is that they actually believe there is a God. If people don't believe there is a God at all, then you don't have a starting point to launch into the Scriptures, a defense of the Scriptures. You have to get to the place where they at least believe that it might be possible there is a God. The second presupposition that's pretty critical is that if there is a God or there might be a God that he has created. It's necessary to get to that step where the person might at least consider the possibility that that God has created. So that you can deal with the third presupposition is that 
If he has created, he has revealed himself. In other words, the fact that there might be a God and that he might have created, then it would stand to reason, at least logically, that, that he would have revealed himself or he would make sure that people know who he is or what he has done. These questions need to be broached. These, this discussion needs to be had. And if we can get to this point with someone, then at least we can start with the first question, which is, well then, if there might be a God, and if he may have created and he may have revealed himself, how has he revealed himself? And the, and the first way that, that God has revealed himself is, for, is by general revelation, what we call general revelation. In other words, that God, by his creation itself, has revealed to every man, woman, boy and girl that that there is a God. It aims at human reason alone, that, that by reason, by looking into the skies, by looking at what's created around us, God should be evident. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following, makes the declaration that God has revealed himself by his creation, and he goes on to say this, therefore, Men are without excuse. At the very least, we can, we can claim with some confidence that there is no human being anywhere in the face of this God's green earth that has excuse for rejecting that there is a God. At least that's how God holds people responsible and accountable. But one, what we do know as well is that general revelation... The fact that creation reveals that God exists is not enough to bring people to salvation. And so we have a second category called the special revelation of God. And the special revelation of God is his word. And his word has come specifically to mankind through his living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his written word, the Bible. In fact, uh, the living word... Christ himself in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the special revelation of God is the living Word of God, or Jesus Christ, But we also have, and what we're turning our attention to for the next couple of Sundays, is the written word of God, the scriptures. God's witness to himself through Jesus Christ and the scriptures. Now the scriptures are a permanent written record of God's word to us. So that leads us to several other questions. In fact, you can prime the, the pump, so to speak, of, of people's interest in the Word of God by, by asking them if they know or can answer certain specific questions in life. Questions that all of us, that all people are interested in. Questions like, how did I come to be? What is the meaning and purpose of my life? Is there a body of truth independent of my own mental limitations. People want to know these. They want to know where did they come from. They, they want to know, do I have any purpose? Is there any meaning to life? These are questions. You, you ask people and say, do you know where you came from? Do you, do you understand the purpose and the meaning of your life? Do you, do you know that there's an independent body of truth outside of your own mental limitations? And, and in, in doing so, the, the next question that should arise, because people have said, well, you're, you're paying attention to an ancient book of old standards written by people who've been dead for centuries, and the question that has to be answered then is, is it the Word of God? Question two, is it the Word of God, or is it a human, human writings, or a mixture of, of both? Now, what we're going to attempt to, to validate or prove to you today is that God's Word is legitimate, and we're going to prove it to you from God's Word. Now, any of you who are, are, uh, aver- are versed in logic will say, that's illegitimate. You can't prove something is true 
by using that something. In fact, it's just circular reasoning. And uh, I would have to agree with you with one exception. It would, in fact, the word of God and God stands outside of this exception because the Bible claims to be truth and it claims to be the word of God or from God. Well, by logic, if God is holy, perfect, and sinless and can't lie, then he is the only one who has the right to legitimize himself by himself, to claim that this is true because I say so, because I'm God and I'm true. If this book is claimed by a God who is sinless and cannot lie to be true, then any claim that it makes must be true. If it is true, it can't claim lies. Now, I understand the, the struggle with the circular logic of that, but, but Jesus was confronted with this very same thing when the Pharisees were challenging his legitimacy, and uh, he said uh, his claim was, I am the Son of God, and therefore I can lay claim to it because I know who I am. And it's the same with the scripture. So what, I, I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, as we journey together on a few major texts this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 15. Now, the letter uh, Timothy was written to a young man called Timothy who um, was ra- had a great heritage. His, his mother, his grandmother were great uh, stalwarts of the faith, and they had trained him in, this, in the, uh, the truth of God. They had trained him in the word of God. They had shared with him the Old Testament scriptures. And so in verse 15, Paul breaks into the, I'm breaking into Paul's conversation, whereby he says to Timothy, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures or literally sacred writings, the heros gramma, the sacred writings. Now, Paul is referring to the body of truth that was in the hands of God's people at that time, the Old Testament scriptures. The, th- the completion of the writing of the Old Testament scriptures was in 400 BC, and now we're talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the first century, and the, how from infancy you have had the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in, G- in Christ Jesus. Now Paul refers to those sacred writings by calling them this, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the claim here from the Scriptures is that, in fact, the Scriptures, the sacred writings that the Old Testament Scriptures that Paul's referring to are God-breathed. Now, in some of your translations, if you have the King James here this morning or if you have the New American Standard, it says that our, all Scripture is inspired of God. Uh, that's not a great translation of this reality. Uh, unfortunately, it has caused people to misunderstand the doctrine of the transmission uh, from God to people by using the word inspire. Because inspire is not the same as God breathed. When we think of someone being inspired, we think of them, something happening to them inside that they've received something themselves. They've been inspired. Inspired is actually inhaling, whereas God breathed is exhaling. There's a huge difference between inhaling and exhaling. Just try to keep inhaling without exhaling, and you will find out there's a huge difference. And so the, this word here, theosnustis, is God, and the same word as, as um, uh, wind or spirit, God breathed. It's the, it's the concept, the same concept as, as what God did in his creative act through the Holy Spirit when he breathed life into human beings, when, he, when, he, when God breathed the universe into existence. He spoke, vocalized the universe into existence. And so... At this point in our journey to define and understand uh, how we got the Bible, what we're really talking about this morning in in this first question, or second question, is where the Bible came from. It's God-breathed. And notice the word there, all scripture, all sacred writings 
are God-breathed. So the Apostle Paul is making the declaration that, that not, it's not some of it, it's not some of it is God-breathed, and some of it's the ideas of man. Um, it, it becomes the, the Word of God as you understand it or as you, as, you, uh, as you siphon off the human flaws and foibles of the Word of God. No, no, it's all sacred writings are God-breathed. So that's where we get our definition or partial definition of what the scripture is. It's plenary inspiration. In other words, plenary meaning full or all. Is, 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 and we use the term inspiration in spite of the fact that it's somewhat misleading. Plenary inspiration is our doctrinal position on the word of God. But there's a, third, there's a third question I want to deal with this morning, and that is taking us from where the Bible came from, where, where we got the Bible, which is God-breathed, to how did we get from God-breathed to a written record? How did we get there? Well, I want to turn, uh, have you turn with me to 2 Peter, um, getting near the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read verses 12 through 21 with you, and then I want to make some commentary about how we got from God breathed to a written record as the scriptures reveal it. Peter writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. So, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by one's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its, own or, its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's a couple of emphases that I want to point out, and then I want to get to some definitions here. He talks about the writings or the sacred writings of the Scripture as truth. Verse 12. In verse 16, he says, they're not cleverly invented stories. He says in, in verse uh, 18, I heard God's voice. We were eyewitnesses to this. This is not something that, uh, that uh, uh, I sat down one day and, and dreamed up a fantasy story and, and came up with an idea. We were actually there. We were on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there when I, I heard the voice from, from God the Father saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. I saw the glory of God manifest in this man's life. I saw this with my own eyes. This is not an invented story that I'm telling you about Christ Jesus. I got this eyewitness. I got this firsthand from him. None of these writings, he says in verse 20, are independent ideas or descriptions from independent thinking and uh, interpreting events independently because the scriptures didn't come and didn't originate in the fertile mind of men, but rather they spoke from God. How? How? He describes it here, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as men were carried along. This word carried along means to be borne along or brought along or, or, or simply carried. The idea here is best, best illustrated by the, the way a sailboat moves. A sailboat moves not by the will of the boat. The boat has no possibilities or capabilities of moving. A sailboat in the absence of wind will sit there 
Anybody, any sailors here? Anybody who sails boats? We live on Lake Ontario. We have one sailor up there. You got to get out and sail once in a while, but I, I get it. We all want power boats. Mm, turn them on. That's it, right? Uh, but the boat, a sailboat, has no will of its own. It sits there unless the wind blows it, carries it along, bears it along. That's the idea of this word. So what Peter is trying to say is, we didn't sit down. We didn't decide, you know, hey, I'm going to write scripture today. That's not how it worked. We were, we were moved along by the Holy Spirit. He carried us along so that every word that we wrote was the, is the word of God. Now, um, some people have uh, tried to define how we got the word of God, and they suggest, well, it, it was dictated to the writers from God. God dictated and they wrote. That's not how Peter describes this. That's not how he got the word of God. In fact, any of you who, uh, who read, read well and read the word of God, you will notice that there are certain books that are written in, in uh, language that's more difficult than other books. If, if you read the original language of, of the New Testament, you will realize that that there are some books that are very hard to translate and some books that are easier to translate. In fact, the, when you're a young seminarian and you're just uh, learning the language, the Greek language, and learning how to translate, they always have you translate the book of John first. Because the book of John is written in simple Greek. John didn't have an expansive uh, vocabulary. He said the same words over and over again. If they, if they were to give you in seminary the, uh, the letters of Paul to translate, you would quit the first day. You'd say, I can't do this. I, I'm leaving seminary. So they give you, they baby you with the book of John. And, and then when you can handle it, they maybe move you on to Luke and Paul. That, that's the way it is because the, Paul writes with great intellectual prowess. He was a... Pharisee, a, a lawyer Pharisee. So his vocabulary was expansive. In fact, the Apostle Peter in uh, chapter 3, verse 16 says, Paul says some stuff that's really hard to understand. Peter's basically saying, John and James and I, we're just simple fishermen. You know, we, we wrote in simple language, but, but Paul, that guy, writes in really complex, complex stuff. Now, if God was dictating, wouldn't all of it be exactly the same, or we have a schizophrenic God. In fact, what we have here is the Holy Spirit moving upon men, allowing them, allowing their personality, their intellectual limitations, and all of that come through so that what they write is totally from God, is God-breathed, and is the truth the way God wanted it to be written. God wanted uh, his word to be expressed in simple language and in more complex language for simple people and for more educated people. But it's the truth of God's word. It's the truth. And the author is God, the collection of books put together by his spirit, carrying along human writers. So the very words they wrote is the word of God. Matthew 5.18, Jesus says, even the letters... The very smallest, the very smallest uh, comma or period is from God. That's how Jesus describes the characters are God-breathed. Now, when we put this up against other religious books, other religious uh, sacred writings, such as the Quran, for instance... The Quran claims, its own claim is that it was the angel Gabriel who spoke the words to one man, Muhammad, and he recorded that. Uh, now, it was recorded 500 years after the last book of the New Testament was written, the book of Revelation. So here we have a, 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 an ancient supposedly sacred writing, laying claim to have superior credibility to the word of God, coming from an angel to one man 500 years after the last book of the Bible was recorded. If we were to take the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, he lays claim to the fact that he had a revelation of Jesus Christ in around 1830. 
One man claiming to have a revelation of Jesus Christ 1,800 years after the last record of Scripture. Over against the Bible that says it is God-breathed with 40 writers over a span of 1,500 years with a continuous stream of, uh, of, uh, of theology that, that uh, coincides, that, that merges together, that, that has the same message from the beginning to the end. The, the amazing reality of the, the, the work of the Bible stands outside of all other sacred writings. The claims of anything else cannot come close to matching the idea of the collection of authors, the credibility that comes with the collection of authors, the, the God-breathing of the Word of God over 1,500 years span. This is the, the, the Bible. The Holy Scriptures are beyond reason and lofty. God's ways are above our ways. But when delivered, they make sense, but impossible to imagine in advance. Now, we, we all need to know that the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. There's a little bit of Aramaic in the book of Daniel. The New Testament was written in the language of Greek, both ancient languages, both the ancient versions of those languages. Modern Hebrew and modern Greek are not the same, although there's borrowed words, borrowed vocabulary. Jesus probably spoke four languages. Jesus likely spoke Hebrew and Greek. Um, he spoke Aramaic, and he likely spoke Latin because he spoke to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who would have spoken Latin. So it's likely that Jesus spoke four languages. It is also likely that the language that Jesus most often spoke was Hebrew. Hebrew is considered the, Hebrews considered the sacred language, the, the, the Lashon HaKadosh, the, the, um, the, the language, the tongue of the, the sacred tongue. It is considered to be the language of God. Uh, whether, in fact, God speaks Hebrew or not, I don't know, but it's considered to be that. But certainly we do know this, that, that when... Um, um, Jesus was, was uh, left behind speaking to the, the, uh, the uh, leaders, the, the priests in the temple at 12 years of age and amazing all of them. He would have been speaking to them in Hebrew. And, and, and so what we need to keep in mind because uh, many of us in this generation have gone through certain amounts of, uh, of, uh, of unnecessary battles in translation and all of that kind of stuff. Let's keep in mind that, that Jesus spoke Hebrew the uh, apostles who wrote, uh, translated his Hebrew into Greek, and the translation went from Hebrew to Greek to English, and then from English, uh, Old English to Modern English. And so in, in all of this, trans, all of this transla translation work, we need to understand that, that uh, the variety of languages all over the world that the Bible's translated into, that we need to be cautious about the issues of, of dividing our fellowship and, and uh, standing up and declaring and, 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 and splitting churches over a certain translation, a certain version. Um, God has preserved the integrity of his word over all of these thousands of years through translations, not just into English, but into all, other, all kinds of language. Because this is a supernatural book. This is a God-breathed and superintended and powerful writing from God that he intends to, to continue to preserve its integrity that people down through the ages might know the truth of God. And if push comes to shove, I'm, I'm uh, convinced, of course, that there are several translations and versions when people say to me, well, what, what do you think is, is the, the, the most careful work that is being done in translation. And I, I'll still uh, maintain to you that the most careful translations that we have in English today are the New American Standard and the, the ESV, the English Standard Version. Those two versions are fundamentally the most carefully translated work that those who know the original languages know that they are translated word for word very carefully. And so out of that, we get our fuller doctrinal position, which is we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of God's word. In other words, every word of scripture is God-breathed. That's the doctrinal position of this church. That's what we believe to be true. We believe that the scriptures declare that. 
Fourth question, how did the sacred writings, the Heros Gramma, that Paul talks to Timothy about, how did these sacred writings or the scripture get to us, and who decided what was the scripture? Who made the rules? Who made the standard that said, this is it, this is the sacred writings? Who determined that? Now, I want you to know a couple of things, and first of all, the the, uh, the Bible didn't become authoritative because it was compiled. It was compiled because it was authoritative. Um, we use a, a word called the canon or the canonization of the scriptures. You know that word? You've heard that word, canon? Well, this is, canon simply means rule or standard. What, what's the guiding rule or standard that qualified this collection of books to be classified as the extent of the sacred writings, the God-breathed Word of God. Who, what, who decided this? I want you to know something that, that we know already, and keep your, keep your finger in 2 Timothy 3.16 if it's there, and I also want you to, to uh, put a finger in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at both of those places. But let me just say this, that God's people at the time of the the giving of God's word recognized it already as God-breathed and authoritative. The recognition of this is not a later idea. It's not several centuries later where people decided, guess what, this is the sacred writings. This is the truth. No, this, the word of God was already recognized as sacred writings by the people who were contemporary with it. The scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, were already recognized as God-breathed and authoritative by the time of the written record. For instance, Jesus himself, concerning the Old Testament, in Luke chapter 11, 50 to 51, he bookends the whole Old Testament. Jesus himself declares uh, what are the legitimate books of the Old Testament. I'm going to talk to you about that in a few moments, so we'll just hold that thought. And Peter, in the New Testament, he already was making claims or stating claims of, of the legitimacy of the scriptures. Um, for instance, look at 2 Peter chapter 2, um, verse 3. Or, sorry, 3, verse 2. 2 Peter 3, verse 2. Peter writes this, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. He's referring to the Old Testament now. And, the, and he's, he's combining now, and the command given by our Lord and Savior through the apostles. So Peter himself is laying God-breathed status, credibility, to words that now have come after the holy prophets through Jesus Christ, through the apostles who are contemporary with him, writing about Christ. Uh, back in verse 16 of this same chapter, Peter states this. He writes, he's talking about Paul now. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own distortion. Sorry, to their own destruction. So um, Peter here is laying claim to present writings of the apostles being categorized as sacred writings. So it was the people contemporary to Jesus who established the canon of the Old Testament, the standard rule, and declared what the Old Testament was and the extent of it, and were putting their stamp of approval on the present apostolic writings that formed the New Testament. The early church then simply came along and recognized what the New Testament people were, had already recognized. And out of that, we, we have 39 books of the Old Testament, which Christ himself declared the law of Moses, three categories, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms in Luke, 4, Luke 24, 44. And 27 New Testament books, making 66 in total, called the Apostles' Teaching. The 27 in the New Testament were, were considered the Apostles' Teaching. Acts 2.42, Ephesians 2.20. And there were certain rules and standards that qualified these books of the New Testament to be recognized as legitimate. 
First of all, they had to be rec- the authorship had to be recognized. Secondly, there had to be doctrinal agreement among them. There couldn't be something that was at odds. And thirdly, there had to be a broad acceptance by the early church. And fourth, there had to be evidence internally of divine influence. Divine, uh, recognized authorship was critical. In the New Testament, the, the New Testament authors are apostles. Therefore, they were eyewitness contemporary with Jesus Christ. They knew what Christ had said. They knew what Christ had done. And they could cross-check each other in their writings. They knew if someone was not writing what was so. So the apostleship, the authorship was critical to being considered legitimate to be part of the New Testament we call the canon of Scripture. Uh, the book of Hebrews, for instance, had the struggle to be part of the canon because there, there's no uh, uh, certain authorship of the book of Hebrews. We know it's God-breathed, but there's no known author. And so it made it into the canon because its doctrine was so in concert with the Old Testament scriptures and with the New Testament reality of what Christ had now done, taking the sacrificial system and now being that once for all sacrifice, that that, that the book of Hebrews became compelling and was inserted into the canon. The book of Mark and the book of of, uh, Luke, neither of those two were apostles, but they had apostolic credibility in that Mark was credible through Peter, and Luke was credible through, anybody know? The Apostle Paul. And so they all, every single New Testament book has apostolic credibility. There were two um, um, councils, early church councils, that solidified the canon of the scriptures the Council of Hippo in 393 and the Council of Carthage, Tunisia in 397. And after 400 AD, there was never, ever again a serious challenge to the canon of the scriptures. Now, you need to know that there was plenty of false writings going on at the time of the New Testament. Plenty of false writings. In fact, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul writes about the fact there's all kinds of false stuff out there. There were 300... Writing, at least 300 writings, false writings about the church itself that were discredited by the apostles, contemporary to the apostle Paul. Um, and many of these writings, were, these writings would be classified as what we would call pseudepigrapha, which is, which is considered false writings. The, the word pseudepigrapha means false writings. And you've heard of things like the Gospel of Thomas, Uh, Whenever anybody's trying to discredit the Bible, they raise up these false writings that were discredited by the apostles of that day, and they surface them, National Geographic or whatever journalist is seeking to take a shot at the scriptures, they bring to bear these conflicting writings that were contemporaneous to the time of Christ, but are not God-breathed, not sacred writings. They were not recognized by the early church. They were not recognized by the apostles. In spite of the lofty, authorship or claim of authorship the gospel of thomas sounds very lofty doesn't it It sounds like a disciple wrote it it wasn't written by thomas now those of you who come from a catholic background need to understand that your bibles uh, had more than 66 books because you have a section called the apocrypha the apocrypha literally means hidden secrets these were words that were written between 200 bc to a.d 100 They were officially considered, declared part of the Catholic canon of the scriptures in 1546. But let me explain to you why the Protestant Bible does not include the Apocrypha and why the Jewish scriptures, the Jews, never recognized the Apocrypha. Um, Paul writes in Romans 3.2 that that, um, the oracles of God were entrusted through the Jews. What we have here, with the exception of Luke but Luke was writing under the supervision of Paul. We have the scriptures, we have the God-breathed sacred writings that have come through the Jews. And the Jews did not recognize, they don't recognize the Apocrypha. It's never, the Apocrypha books, there's 14 or 15 of them, are never ever quoted by Christ or the apostles in spite of the fact that Christ and the apostles quoted from the Old Testament scriptures 260 times. But never once did they quote 
from any of the books in that section called the Apocrypha in the, that, that is found in the Catholic Bible. It's never included in any church, early church canon lists. So in the research of, of early church and the listing of the books of the Bible, you will never find the books of the Apocrypha. It also contains doctrinal anomalies that you never find anywhere else in Scripture, like prayer for the dead, for instance. You'll never find that backed up anywhere else. But when you look at the books of Scripture, you will find that the doctrinal teaching in one book is repeated in another book. There's consistency in doctrine. And then finally, Jesus or, or, uh, and Jerome, who translated the Bible in the Latin Vulgate, who was the original translator for the Catholic Bible, did not include the Apocrypha in the Latin Vulgate. Finally, critical to this is Jesus himself, because these books of the Apocrypha were written before the 200 years before the time of Jesus and during his time here. Jesus, when laying claim to the canon of the Old Testament, in Luke chapter 11, verse 50 to 51, said from the time of the blood of Abel to the time of the blood of Zechariah. So Jesus actually, the, the, when was the time of the blood of Abel? In the, what book? Genesis. When was the time of the blood of Zechariah? You might not know, it's Chronicles. And you'll say, wait a second, Rick. Chronicles is not the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi is, right? Well, Malachi is the last book of our version of the Old Testament. But the actual true Jewish canon of the Old Testament has the Chronicles as the last book of the Old Testament. So when Jesus was questioned... He is actually putting bookends to the canon of the Old Testament. He's saying from Genesis to Chronicles, that's the Word of God, the Old Testament Word of God. Never, no, the, the Apocrypha is not con contained there. Well, let me conclude with the f final question for you this morning. Why did the Bible even come to us? Why has it been preserved? Why do we have it? We need it. The answer is we needed it. It's been handed down by faithful people to us. In the book of, of 2 Timothy, Chapter 3, verse 15, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, listen, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We do not come to salvation because we know the Scriptures. The Scriptures lead us to salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you think you, you, you think you have eternal life because you know the Word of God, but the Word of God is a reference to me and you don't know me. And the Old Testament scriptures from the beginning right through to the New Testament, the end to the book of Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it brings life to us. We are made wise unto salvation through Christ, faith in Christ Jesus. At verse 17, it says that we are thoroughly equipped for every good work by knowing the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, or 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. If someone said to me, the book, this book that you go by, it's old, it's old-fashioned, it's written by writers who've been dead for centuries, it's, it's uh, old ancient standards, I would take them to this verse and say, are you kidding me? The Word of God, have you ever read the Word of God? Because to say that means you've never read the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful. It's living. It's not outdated. It's the present dynamic force to be reckoned with. It's not dead. It's not related to a bygone era. It's active, not passive. It's the same voice that created everything, and it has the power to change everyone. It's at work. The Word of God is at work. It's effective in carrying out God's wishes, God's will, God's intentions. It's penetrating. It says here it's like a double-edged sword. It's not casual entertainment. It actually cuts right through to your attitudes and your thoughts. It goes through the layers of crust and the external veneer that you have and the pretend persona that you put on. You can't read the Bible and, and walk around with your pretend persona. Maybe everybody else thinks you're this way, but the Word of God cuts right through to the heart. It, it challenges your attitude. It challenges your thinking. It's actually alive. It's two-edged. 
It, prom- it, ha- it gives promises to the faithful and judgment to the rebellious. And that's why the Calvary culture, the Calvary Baptist Church culture is this. We take God's word seriously. When you know and when you've come to terms with and if you believe that it is God-breathed, all God-breathed from God, his word to us, it radically revolutionizes your life and how you treat the word of God. And you will take the word of God seriously. And there is a Calvary Baptist Church triangle of taking God's word seriously. At the top of the triangle is the preaching and proclamation of God's word. At this side of the triangle is the personal daily devotion to God's word. And at the other side of the triangle is the gathering together with God's people in small settings to challenge and hold each other accountable and apply the word of God. That's the dynamic of taking God's word seriously. That's the triangle. That's what it means here at Calvary Baptist Church to take God's word seriously. And we do so because we believe with all of our hearts that it is God-breathed All of it is God-breathed and is able to lead us to faith in Jesus Christ and to show us every good work to please God. And you can only find those two things that really matter in life in the Word of God. Our Father, we pray and thank you for your Word to us. It's a light to our path. We realize, Lord, that how can a young man keep from sinning against you? The answer, by hiding the word of God in his heart. So our Father, I pray that we might take this very seriously, your word, that we might handle it with care and with love and with seriousness, O God. For in it are the oracles of God, the truth that sets us free. O God, thank you for your word. I pray that God's people will take it very seriously in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close our morning, affirming together the important place that God's Word has in our hearts and our lives and in our community here at Calvary. words long preserved for our walk in this world. They resound with God's own heart. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Words of life, words of hope, give us strength. world where'er we roam ancient words will guide us home ancient words ever true changing me and changing
has been attacked and I have been attacked for believing it and so have you and people will say to you this is old and ancient and isn't relevant for the things of today all I know is the grass will wither and the flowers will fall but the Word of God will stand forever and when I hear something like that I put a whole lot of importance in it. That's what we have from God's Word. Do you have God's Word with you this morning? Do you have a virtual version of it? Who has God's Word with them this morning? Show me it. Show me God's Word. This will show us the way to Jesus Christ and will show us every good work to please our God. This is our book. This shows us the way home. Bring the Word of God with you. Make sure that what I'm telling you is so, that you see it with your own eyes, that you know it, that you learn it. This is God-breathed, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the soul and the marrow, dividing the bone and the marrow, right to the soul, right to your attitude, right to your thinking. Oh, yeah, you go away from this book realizing, man, I've got some work to do in my heart. God has some real work to do in my heart. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. We love it. We love you. We, you've given us this great revelation. We're not left to wonder. It's, you're not hiding yourself from us. You're telling us who you are and what pleases you and how to live. Oh, God, may we be people who worship you by obeying the word of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.